Mixed martial arts isn't short of ironic moments. In fact, there are at least 10 that come to mind. And it's true the sport has had its fair share of these awkwardly wonderful moments. Still, we accept that the terrain we're crossing today could be controversial. Irony is literally the most abused word in the English language. Or maybe it's literally. Literally. Regardless, irony is up there, and the fact that the sticklers are still dissecting where poor Alanis Morissette went wrong in 1996 tells you everything. I'm Balian from MMA On Point, and these are the 10 most ironic moments in MMA history. Number 10, those UFC event names. Let's be real, the UFC's naming convention is dull. UFC followed by a number is just woefully unimaginative. But you know what? It's fine. It works. At least it documents the chronology. Plus, it's really difficult to come up with a name for anything. Imagine doing it at the rate the UFC runs events nowadays good luck with that one. Still, back in the day, that's what they did. It was far easier, of course, since they produced far fewer shows, yet despite a few that were alright, they did have a lot of stinkers. Firstly, they overused Ultimate. There was Ultimate Japan, Ultimate Brazil, Ultimate Bad Boys, Ultimate Force, and Ultimate Ultimate. Yeah, Ultimate Ultimate was a thing. There was also Ultimate Field of Dreams, which unfortunately didn't feature a cameo from Kevin Cosner. There were also some pretty ironic event names, although an Unless Doc Brown was involved, the promotion wouldn't have known this at the time. UFC 24 titled First Defense actually had no title defenses after champion Kevin Randleman's fight against Pedro Hizo was scrapped and he slipped and KO'd himself backstage. Then there was UFC 76 Knockout, which you guessed it, featured zero knockouts and UFC 125 Resolution, where the main event ended in a draw. Brilliant. And of course, most recently we had UFC 177, but attached the tagline, never trust the odds, where of course every betting favorite won that night. Number nine, Frank Lester's teeth. Oh man, poor Frank Lester. Poor, poor Frank Lester. So you might know the former Jackson Wink coach from his riff with John Jones in 2019, where he claimed that Jones didn't pay him for his full coaching services leading into UFC 239. But if you watched The Ultimate Fighter USA versus the UK back in 2009, you'll likely remember him for his stint as a contestant. Although not because he was hugely successful or anything, actually it's for the opposite. Firstly, his entry into the house was disputed from the get-go, after his opponent in the elimination round did reverse Jessica Andrade knocking himself out while attempting to slam Lester as he tacked with a Kimura. But it was his fight against eventual winner James Wilkes in episode 6, fittingly titled $100 a Tooth, that we care about. Leading in, Team USA's Demarcus Johnson challenged Lester to knock out one of Wilkes' teeth during the match for $100, but unfortunately for Lester, it was Wilkes who landed a knee in the first round and, ironically, knocked out Lester's four top front teeth. To his credit, he went back out for the second round after a pep talk from coach Dan Henderson, but it ultimately came to naught because following a short break in the action to dislodge Lester's teeth from his mouth guard, Wilkes won the bout via armbar. Number 8. John Jones, the role model. Not. It's hard to tell whether John Jones got corrupted by fame or fame revealed his true nature, but cause aside, when you look at his rhetoric early on and compare that to his actions later, you can't deny it's all unbelievably 
ironic. For those that don't remember, he carried himself as a squeaky clean role model who preached Christian values and professionalism, and thanks to the internet's ineradicable nature, this version of John has been archived forever. But the moment that probably exemplifies what I'm talking about best happened in a post-fight interview at UFC 126. John had just beaten Ryan Bader and was famously offered a title shot in the octagon. Afterwards, while speaking to Ariel Hawani, Jones waxed poetic about never doing anything dumb. I'm way too close to my dreams to slow down or start doing anything uh, dumb, and I won't do anything dumb. Needless to say, that did not age well, and while I won't revisit his entire career, it is safe to say that hit and runs and multiple failed drug tests have seen him not only fuck up, but for a guy who actively campaigned against doing dumb shit, he's probably the UFC champion who has fucked up the most. Number 7. Frank Shamrock, the star of the future The UFC wasn't in good shape in the late 90s. Well, they were dying. They were deep into their dark ages and every time it appeared they caught a break there was just another twist in the tale. You can see this with New York flip-flopping on regulation 1996 or with events like UFC 9 which should have been a massive success but did more harm than good. Another twist was with Frank Shamrock, who was quickly becoming their leading man. He won the inaugural light heavyweight title, then known as the middleweight, on his debut, and his talent was arguably unmatched. He had also headlined every event the UFC produced in the whole of 1998, proving that he was an attraction at the time when they needed one. And this culminated in a fight of the year title defense against Tito Ortiz, which Shamrock won by TKO in the fourth round. And it's generally one of the few fights that I'd recommend revisiting from that era. It was that good. Plus for Shamrock, it was a real star-making performance and even prompted Jeff Blatnick and Bob Merowitz to declare that he was one of the greatest in the post-fight interview. And in some ways, they effectively tethered their survival to his success. He was the man, the guy with the best shot to lead them out of the darkness. But right then and there, he announced he was done. Typical of the UFC to hitch their wagon to Shamrock for him only to retire on the same night. Another twist in the tale. Number 6. Colby Covington's mouth is closed Considering how on the nose Colby Covington's shtick was, it was fitting that his first loss followed suit. Despite a respectable 8-1 run in the UFC, he was slowly becoming just another solid fighter in a division packed full of them. So, he decided to do something about it, and as is customary in MMA, if you want the clout, you use your mouth. That's what she said! <laughs> But he didn't just turn up the volume on the Colby we knew, he reconfigured his entire presentation, adopting a gimmick that tapped into one of the most contentious aspects of culture politics. Yet even with this rhetoric, it was the digs unrelated to politics that were truly reprehensible, particularly the one aimed at Glenn Robinson, Kamaru's late manager who had passed away from a heart attack. He was ducking me so long when Glenn Robinson was his manager that Glenn Robinson died from it. I know you gave Glenn a heart attack for all those years you were, you were ducking me, so don't worry, he'll be watching from hell on December 14th. And it's not surprising that a giant segment of the fan base hoped Usman would shut his mouth when they met. And they couldn't have predicted that the result would be so literal because not only did Usman stop Covington, but he broke his jaw. And that, my friends, is called poetic just, uh, no, um, irony, irony, of course. Number five, the Machida era. 
Irony is a useful tool for comedians, but I doubt Joe Rogan thought he was using it when he declared that the Machida era was upon us. But he shouldn't be too hard on himself, even though he did admit that it was his worst prediction ever. That was like my worst prediction of all time. Welcome to the Machida era. Probably my worst. Most fans and pundits expected Machida to have a lengthy reign thanks to his past dominance. But he was a complex puzzle nobody could solve, and his title-clinching knockout of Rashad Evans remains an all-time great finish. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the Machida era. But of course, things didn't quite work out as expected. In his first title defense, he faced Mauricio Shogun Hua, who aside from producing a few flashes of brilliance, had been objectively underwhelming since joining the UFC. Yet Shogun quickly solved the Machida riddle and should have won only for a couple of bad scorecards. They'd have an immediate rematch and this time Shogun made it decisive, stopping the dragon in the first. And so the prophesized era turned out to be one of the shortest title reigns in UFC history. Talk about ironic. Number 4. The BMF title fights inappropriate ending. It was only after Nate Diaz challenged Jorge Masvidal that we realized it was the fight we never knew we wanted to see. Because it was more than about involving famous athletes, it was a showdown between fighters whose careers and philosophies aligned. While Nate was on a three-year hiatus, Masvidal, who had been knocking out the proverbial glass ceiling for years, broke through by finishing a European star. Sounds familiar. He would then follow that up with a quip that would become ingrained in the MMA lexicon. You know, so I had to give him the three-piece with the soda. Again, we've seen this story before, but most importantly, he held a philosophy that complemented Nate's latest concept, the BMF division. Diaz only wanted to fight those who he believed were the best, not guys who the UFC had championed, and he valued longevity, fight style, cool factor, never-say-die attitude, and violent streak metrics in which Masvidal ranked high. So, when the fight was set and the UFC commissioned an actual belt, fans expected nothing less than what was promised. And we got that for three rounds, with Masvidal leading the dance. But Diaz, who got busted open early, stayed the course. Plus, the belief was it was the championship rounds where he'd come alive anyway. But that, unfortunately, didn't happen because the doctor waved the fight off between rounds three and four due to the cut above Nate's eye. And while certainly a dangerous cut, particularly because of its location, it was an ironically tame ending to a proposed fight between two of the baddest motherfuckers of all time. Number 3. Oh, so you're a wrestler now. One of the more fascinating things about Conor McGregor early on was his ability to prophesize. He predicted he would drag the UFC back to Ireland and headline its return, and he did it within three fights. He subsequently prognosticated first-round knockouts against Diego Brandao and Dustin Poirier, and then, apparently, tried to bet Dana White $3 million that he'd beat Chad Mendes in the second round all of which would have been fine wages. This, of course, led to the Jose Aldo fight where McGregor practically rehearsed the finish in his locker room, predicting to end the fight in the first exchange. So, yeah. I predict these things. 
so to speak. There was, of course, however, one prediction that would come back to bite him in the ass. McGregor would regularly criticize his opponents for becoming what he called panic wrestlers. He claimed that, whether they were grapplers by trade or not, his pressure makes them instinctively turn into one. Unfortunately for McGregor, he pretty much described his loss to Nate Diaz at UFC 196. I mean, he couldn't have been more accurate. So it would seem there is indeed really something to that Mystic Mac thing. It turns out it can also, though, work both ways. Number two, Cardio Cane Gases. In a division infamous for its heavy-handed finishes, aerobically hamstrung by their size, Cain Velasquez stood out. He was a middling heavyweight as far as mass goes, but elite in every other way. And his greatest advantage was his immense cardio, augmented by an ironclad will, which Daniel Cormier once credited as the primary facilitator of his dominance. He said that Velasquez knew no matter how exhausted he was, his opponent was always further along that path. And we saw that best in the JDS 2 and 3 fights. So, when he was slated to defend against Fabricio Verdun, fans expected more of the same, especially when their fight was rescheduled for UFC 188 in the famed Mexico City. Firstly, it'd be a home game of sorts for the Mexican-American in Kane, and that's always nice. But secondly, and more importantly, the city is 7,000 feet above sea level. This meant the oxygen concentration would be much lower than usual, a purportedly advantageous setting for Kane's seemingly limitless stamina. Yet, and you guessed it due to the nature of this video, it was indeed that cardio that ironically betrayed him. Unlike Verdun, who had moved his camp to Mexico City to acclimatize, Velasquez opted to stay put at sea level in San Jose. And it cost him because within two rounds, he was exhausted. And it didn't help that his approach didn't change either. His output was as legendary as ever, but as the fight wore on, the efficacy of his attacks plummeted. This forced him to shoot for a telegraph takedown in the third round, gifting his neck to Verdum's guillotine choke and that Brazilian jiu-jitsu black belt. Number 1. Gonzaga Head Kicks Crocop you couldn't pen Gabriel Gonzaga's upset of Mirko Krokop as a piece of fiction because it was too good to be true. Granted, not for Krokop fans, and I can attest that being a supporter myself, but narratively, it was far too clean. When he signed with the UFC in 2006, Krokop had just won the Pride World Openweight Grand Prix and only trailed Fedor Emelianenko in the consensus heavyweight rankings. He had also a distinct superhero-like quality in that his kicks were were treated like powers, comparable to Kal-El's heat vision and ability to conceal his identity with a simple pair of glasses. Well, maybe just the first one. But yeah, they were savage. Just ask Vandele Silva, Alexander Emelianenko, or Igor of Chechen you have their number or email or something. Still, despite his myth, the promotion chose not to rush him into a title shot, but instead fed him Eddie Sanchez as the sacrificial lamb to introduce the Croatian to US audiences. He was then inserted into the UFC 17 main event opposite an unproven underdog in Gonzaga. The bout was billed as a title eliminator with the pre-fight package leaning heavily on Krokop's aforementioned superpower, and the fight would indeed end by a 
boot, but it was Gonzaga's head kick that rendered Krokop unconscious as Mirko's right leg, the one the old Maxim claimed would send you to the hospital, unnaturally contorted under his lifeless body, sending him there instead. A big thank you for today's video editor, Clay from Uncle Joey MMA on Twitter, that is at Uncle Joey MMA. Shout out to Ben Rosette and the excellent music he provided during the intro video. His music can be found on streaming platforms everywhere. There is a link in the description and follow him at Ben Rosette on Instagram and on Twitter. Thank you to the writer of today's video, Rob Palin. You can follow him on Twitter at the Robert Palin. Thank you very much for watching everyone today. Please go ahead and like and subscribe if you did enjoy the content. We upload at least three videos every week for your viewing pleasure. Go ahead and leave a comment below if you want to join in the discussion and follow us on Twitter at MMA on Point and myself at Balian underscore plays. You can now jump in and join the community discord as well if you want to continue the discussion further. And I hope you've enjoyed yourselves. I'll see you in the next one.